One of the things that brings me hope when I think about how divided we are, and I think about all the people cringing at the thought of getting together for holidays, is that caregivers are able to put a lot of those objections aside and to say that this person has inherent dignity and they're worthy of being cared for. And I think that same energy, if we can bring that with us into what will probably be a difficult winter, I think we have a lot to hope for. And that's something that caregivers have brought to us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Connecting ALS. I am one of your hosts, Mike Stevenson. I'm joined by my co-host on the East Coast, Jeremy Holden. Jeremy, how are you holding up here during election week? Yeah, exciting times. You know, I think this is a big election, and as you said, an election week. So as we talk, watching results continue to come in. Another thing, though, Mike, is election week always comes in November. But another thing that always comes in November is Family Caregivers Month, something that we are going to be talking about today. Yeah, National Family Caregivers Month every November, the time to really recognize and honor the caregivers in our lives who are doing so much and and making such large sacrifices to provide care for their loved ones. And we had the good fortune to speak with someone very much in that world, the president and CEO uh, of the National Alliance for Caregiving, Grace Whiting. And she, as we expected, had some excellent perspective on some of the things that are impacting caregivers and what's being done to provide them resources. I thought it was a really good conversation, Jeremy. Yeah, Grace did not disappoint. And the Alliance put together a great report, something they put out every couple of years on the state of caregiving in America. And so we will certainly share that in in the show notes, something Grace talked a, a little bit about. It was also fascinating to hear her talk about the state of caregiving during the pandemic, something we've talked about with some of our guests. But obviously, caregivers in the ALS community just like everyone dealing with the pandemic, dealing with uh, quarantine and social distancing, and really fascinating to hear Grace's insight on that. It was, and now that we're so many months into the pandemic, we have more data and more things to analyze, and their organization is one that is, is doing that, and we're learning from it, and I think we're growing from it. And so let's listen back now to our conversation with Grace Whiting. We are joined today by Grace Whiting, the president of the National Alliance for Caregiving. Welcome to Connecting ALS, and thanks for being with us today, Grace. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So November is National Family Caregivers Month, and it's a time when we recognize all of the amazing caregivers out there who sacrifice every day to provide care to their loved ones. Grace, to start with, can you tell our audience a bit about your organization's mission and goals? So the National Alliance for Caregiving has been around since 1996, and I really think of us as a coalition of coalitions and and other advocates. Our goal is really to build partnerships in research, advocacy, and innovation that can make life better for family caregivers. And, you know, in a perfect world, we would like to see a society where those who are caring for a friend or a family member with a healthcare need or a disability are really empowered to thrive at home and at work and um, in other parts of their life. And Grace, I want to dig into the numbers. So you guys keep track of some trends in caregiving, who's serving as caregiving. So what do we know here in 2020 about the state of caregiving, of family caregiving, how many people serve as caregivers? What, what, give us a sense of the landscape. 
When we look at caregiving, and again, we're focused on people who care for someone who's a friend or family member of someone with a healthcare need or a disability. So we estimate that there's roughly 53 million people living in the United States who are caring for another person, whether that's an adult or a child. And we've been looking at that over the years in partnership with AARP. So we've done studies in 1997, 2004, 09, 15, and and this year. What that means is, is we can look at trends over time. So not only do we know that 53 million or roughly one out of five Americans are family caregivers, but also we know that that's almost 10 million more people than when we looked at this five years ago. And we know that people are more likely to be caring for someone that has multiple chronic conditions and more likely to be caring for someone longer. So that care journey is being extended as people continue to age and America becomes grayer. Mm. Thanks for that that breakdown. It's, it's good to have that kind of profile. Recognizing that while the health and well-being of caregivers is really always on your mind uh, at NAC, uh, during the month of November, uh, National Family Caregivers Month, what kind of messages are you promoting to help increase awareness uh, for this issue? One of the biggest messages is that caregivers are not the same person as the person they're caring for. And that sounds really silly, but if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, oh, when I say patient, I mean caregiver. I mean, we Mm -hmm. could (laughs) serve tenfold the number of people we serve now. And I think think part of that is that um, it's a delicate balance, right? Like, and even now when we think about COVID, there are things that a caregiver needs in order to support somebody um, and to be partners in decision-making. And when I think about a a condition like ALS, that's really important, right? Just because you have ALS doesn't mean you're not able to speak for yourself or raise your own voice. But there's also things that caregivers need in order to be healthy and well and to be good partners in care. And that could be everything from workplace accommodations. It could be you know, making sure you have access to respite care to take a break when you need it. It could even be things like staying connected, addressing feelings of isolation. That was something that really shocked me in our study was that caregivers that were in the same home as the person they were caring for were more likely to say that they felt alone or isolated. And I think that gets at that sense of you want so badly to be a good partner. You want to elevate the person that you're caring for, but sometimes it can be a very lonely experience as well. And Grace, we've heard from people that we've spoken with who are dealing with the pandemic. You you mentioned that caregivers, of course, are dealing with COVID like all of us. And folks that we've talked to have talked about how it's kind of enhanced those feelings of of isolation. Of course, people are are figuring out ways to, to quarantine, to socially distance, What are you hearing? What are some things that caregivers can do to continue to tap into the support systems that are available to them in a way that is, you know, appropriate given the pandemic? Telehealth, I think, is a big piece of this. So one of the ways I think people can stay connected if we're talking about healthcare systems is participating in telehealth visits, you know, really coordinating care and and communicating with someone's healthcare provider. But I think as sort of the broader piece of how, you know, how do I stay connected? It's been really fascinating to see how families are innovating this. I think if you're at home, the challenge is really reaching out for support and online support groups, patient advocacy organizations such as ALS 
Association and others are a great place to sort of connect with with folks. There's a effort among the senior centers or sometimes known as the area agencies on aging to do family caregiver groups that are now online or by telephone. And so I think those types of resources can be really helpful. But I also think if you're caring for someone who's in a facility, we that's where we've seen a lot of innovation happen. You know, for example, an Easter parade where people are in their cars and they're sort of driving around and connecting with people that way. The other thing I would just say is that as we learn more about the science of the pandemic and as caregivers are able to get access to PPE and rapid COVID testing, that being able to get out and connect more, whether it's walking around or in small groups, seems to be more doable than it did when we were first looking at all this back in March. Yeah, it's been interesting, as you alluded to, to see the kind of creative ways that people are finding to stay connected and stay engaged throughout all of this. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the report that can be found on your website, caregiving.org, that is, I think, of particular interest to families facing ALS. It's called Rare Disease Caregiving in America, and it's a pretty comprehensive look at that subject. Are there uh, key takeaways from that? Um, of course, we want to direct people to, to check it out for themselves, but are there, are there key findings that you can tell us about? Absolutely. That report, uh, as nerdy as it sounds, our Rare Disease Caregiving Report was one of my babies. I was just so excited to do work with the rare community. And one of the things that has has really struck me when I think about the different communities we work in, whether it's dementia, cancer, aging, you know, intellectual disabilities, is that in the rare community, there's simultaneously a sense of hope of, we believe that science is going to help pave a path forward. And I think sort of partnership or willingness to come together to advocate for better support, whether that is biomedical technologies and innovations or support for people who are going through this day to day. The rare disease report had some interesting findings, one of which um, that people were more connected in with clinical trials, another that people felt a sense of loss for what their life could have been like had they not had to care for someone because of this disease or if that person had not had the disease. And that, I think, is a marker of caregiver strain and makes it really challenging sometimes for people to get the help they need because they're kind of grappling with complicated loss. Like, I am grieving what our life could have been like, but I also want to be present and here in the moment. Um, And likewise, many caregivers reported that they felt caregiving brought them closer to the person that they were caring for and it gave them a sense of honor and purpose. So those are questions we've actually now repeated in our other research studies because we found the findings really fascinating on rare disease. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that that data point about, I think it was one in two caregivers said that they found a sense of purpose. And it, 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 does, it does talk about some of that, I guess, tension, for lack of a better term, that, that exists there. You, you talk about the, the sense of loss for the life that could have been, but then the sense of purpose. Really great report. I think you have every right to be proud of the work that went into it and and the product that came out. And as as Mike mentioned, we will absolutely share that in our show notes. 
Grace, you mentioned that the association does some advocacy work. Um, are there particular public policy issues that are either at the forefront now or that you see once we are on the other side of the pandemic that will become important uh, in terms of further empowering caregivers to thrive in the role that they uh, inherit? When it comes to rare disease, one of the advocacy issues I think that's really critical is carving out a more formal role for the caregiver in medical product development and in clinical trial design. And that's something we've been working with FDA on. I will tell you, you know, when you first start to look at FDA and you see words like PADUFA and MADUFA and all, you know, <laughs> your eyes, <laughs> you kind of glaze over and you're like, oh my goodness. But what we have learned is, you know, first off, I think it's great that policymakers and members of Congress and those who have written the 21st Century Cures legislation believe that the people who have a disease and the people who care for them should have a voice in what type of medicines and devices are developed to help them. And at the heart of PDUFA's patient engagement work is really that philosophy that, you know, sort of, you know, how they talk in the disability world where they say nothing about us without us. So I think there's a huge opportunity as trials are developed for ALS as people are out there looking at the science to say that caregivers are a part of the process of keeping someone safe and keeping them healthy and managing medication. And they should have a formal role in the clinical process, not one where they just sort of speak on behalf of the patient, but one where they're actually providing their observations and insights and where we're measuring what the impact is of the disease on the caregiver. The other, I would just say, the federal government it has a federal advisory council called the RAISE Family Caregivers Advisory Council, and they're developing a national plan for caregiving that will go to the secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services. And so reaching out to the RAISE Council, sharing perspectives through the Administration for Community Living's website is a great place, I think, for ALS advocates to engage. Thanks for that information, Grace. Advocacy is such a key part of your work there at the National Alliance for Caregiving and also here at the ALS Association. We are in election week here in the U.S., and I think we're seeing how important it is for everyone to have a voice. I'd like to ask you a little bit about your upcoming project with the Adira Foundation as well that uh, is focused on helping caregivers during the pandemic. What information can you give us about that? It's a community project. I, and, and I should say that about all of our work, whether it's the rare disease study or others, you know, we see ourselves as the policy nerds and we bring in partnership groups that are working every day with real people who are out there trying to make things happen. So we're working with Mental Health America, the National Health Council, a sort of corporate philanthropic startup called World Without COVID, and the Gerontological Society of America to really develop a framework to describe what caregivers are going through and to begin to aggregate resources by those pain points. So looking at, you know, how do I navigate telehealth? How do I manage when someone is gatekeeping and preventing me from being, you know, part of the decision-making that's happening at the hospital or that's happening in a post-acute care setting or at home or in a facility? 
really looking at what types of respite might be available. And so what we'll be doing in November and December is hosting essentially community forums where people can provide insight to us on the framework as well as suggest resources that can be used for caregivers. But the other thing I would say is there's a lot of resources that kind of just throw out a bunch of links and they say, you know, here's all the caregiving things, but you really have to spend a lot of time going through them. And there's that sense of decision fatigue that you've already got so much going on. You're trying to care for this person. You've got your own things happening. And having to sit there and sift through, you know, 30 different resources is not always getting people the help that they need. And so what we're hoping to do with our steering committee and these forums is really create more of a, a Wikipedia for caregivers so that it's quicker for them to get to the information they're looking for. It's such a great initiative, and I'm sure that the resources that come out of this will be invaluable for people in the caregiver world. A word that's come up a couple times in our conversation today has been respite care. And as we reflect on Family Caregiver Month, what does the data tell us about the need for for self-care, for that respite care, and and just kind of putting that in in the center of the conversation? What's interesting about respite is we notice it's only about a third of people say that they need respite care. But what I would say is there's a lot of cultural pieces there and there's a lot of challenges, I think, in caregivers finding respite or being able to take a break, whether that's having a home care person come in, you know, taking someone to a a day facility where they can receive care so that you can go out and get your haircut or run errands or things like that. And, you know, one of the findings that's always fascinated me is when you look at communities of color, particularly African-American families and Latino or Hispanic families, those families often have less support. They have less outside help. They have less access to respite. And yet they report more positive feelings around caregiving and they tend to report that they have less strain. And we've debated a lot. (laughs) What is it that's driving that, right? It's counterintuitive. You know, there's some discussion that it's cultural assumptions that, you know, if if it's in my family, uh, that I will always be a caregiver and I'm having to sort of grapple with that cultural role, I might not be comfortable reporting that I need a break. And I think that's what's driving Mm -hmm. when people think about respite is, both this sense of protectiveness, like how can I leave this person alone? I know how to care for them and this other person doesn't. And also that sense of, you know, what does it say about me if I need to take a break? And I think one of the things we try to do when we're thinking about those caregivers is really reframe that and to say, you know, taking a break, if you, if you won't do it for you, do it because it makes you a better partner in care. Because sometimes caregivers, they're so reluctant to do something for themselves, but approaching it from the, from the frame of this is what will help you be a good partner, be able to bring your best self to these difficult conversations is making sure that you are taking the break that you need. Well, thank you again, Grace Whiting with the National Alliance for Caregiving. It was so wonderful to have you on and during a National Family Caregivers Month to hear about what's on the minds of caregivers everywhere and how your organization is helping empower them. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having us and for the great work that you're doing. 
Well, thank you again to Grace Whiting and to all the folks at the National Association of Caregivers for all the great work that they do. And a special thanks and shout out to all the caregivers in the ALS community for for the for the role that they play uh, in our fight. Yes, thank you to all of you family caregivers out there for doing the work that you do. And November is National Family Caregivers Month, but really we want to make sure we're recognizing you throughout the year. This is your reminder to subscribe to Connecting ALS. Uh, at connectingals.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on social media on Facebook and Twitter. This episode was produced by Garrett Tiedemann of the ALS Association's Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota chapter. Thank you all for listening. Uh, We'll connect with you again soon.